105. The rule of Scripture is in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. By that, God is giving us information that we should interpret the word by the word, not by our experience. There are a number of scriptures that uh, uh, perhaps are written and covering a subject just one time in one specific way. And we've got to be careful not to build doctrines off of things that, uh, that can't be confirmed. But I had the idea, uh, I believe it was the Holy Ghost idea, you decide for yourself. But um, there are several places where Jesus identified himself as a part of the, the, uh, uh, the price or the substitute that was made for our uh, redemption. And there are some things that happened in the Old Testament particularly that Jesus identifies with and tells us that, uh, that his death, burial, and resurrection uh, confirms those things. So the first one I want to look at, I want to give you three witnesses of healing tonight by Jesus himself. And the first thing I want you to do is turn with me to Psalm 105. It's dealing with the, uh, the Passover. Now, it'll take uh, a minute to, to set the story up so that we can get the scriptures that we want to read in context. But you remember how that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and told him to go, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And there was a big discussion that Moses had. God had to talk him into doing it, really. And, uh, and so he wound up going before Pharaoh and uh, telling him what God said about the children of Israel being released from bondage. And you remember that there were a number of times where Pharaoh said, I will, but now I won't, changed his mind, dealt unfairly with, uh, with the children of Israel in a lot of ways. And as a result, each time that happened, there was some kind of plague that came upon Egypt, nine different plagues that came upon the Egyptian people. And each one was uh, a sign that God was greater than one of their gods. Egypt served a multiplicity of gods as most of the, the world in Jesus' day did too. Most of the Roman Empire did the same thing. And so there, was, uh, there were a number of these plagues that were uh, poured out, if you will, on Egypt, Pharaoh and the people, to show for God, as God demonstrated that he was greater than any god that they served. Finally, after the ninth plague, there was one last thing that took place, and that was the death of the firstborn. Now, you remember this brought on what we know of and what the Bible identifies as the Passover. And there was a lamb that was uh, slain for each family, each household. And they were commanded to take the blood and put it on the doorpost, side post and the doorpost uh, of their house. And that blood would be a sign unto the angel of death, the destroying angel that came through the, uh, not only the, the uh, well, throughout all of Egypt, including where Israel was. And, uh, and that blood was a sign for the angel to pass over that house. They were also instructed to, to uh, uh, roast the lamb that was killed, the animal sacrifice that was killed. And they were told that that was for the strength of their journey. Now, we know from reading the story, and God knew ahead of time, that that would be the thing that would cause Pharaoh to finally relent once and for all and turn the children of Israel loose. We know that that didn't stick after Pharaoh got over a little bit of his grief, the grief of his firstborn son that was killed, then he decided to come back after the children of Israel and destroy them. And that's where God parted the Red Sea and let them come over on dry land. And when Pharaoh's armies chased in after them, 
then they were killed. The water came back together and they were all drowned. So Psalm 105 is a recap, if you will, of what happened regarding the plagues in Egypt and the Passover. Let's start reading in verse 26. He, speaking of God, sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. He's talking about some of the plagues. And they rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. Their land brought forth frogs in abundance in the chambers of their kings. He spake and there came divers sorts of flies and lice in all their coasts. All of these are, are individual plagues that took place uh, until they get to the, the last and final plague. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their hand. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and brake the trees of their coast. He spake and the locusts came and caterpillars and that without number and did eat up all the herbs in their land and devoured the fruit of the ground. He smote also the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. That's what happened on the Passover. And remember that God gave them specific instructions to keep the ritual of the Passover and to explain to the, the, their children what it meant, what, what it was for, and what it was all about. So he smote also all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. Now notice verse 37. He brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Now, all of these things are, uh, as I said, the recap for the plagues and the different things that took place. The Passover specifically is identified and gives uh, much greater detail than, than uh, Psalm 105 in the 12th chapter of Exodus. And as I said, you remember that when they left Egypt, Pharaoh decided to come back after them and to destroy them. And they went through the Red Sea, the waters parted for them, and they went through on the other side and Pharaoh's army was destroyed. But notice, again, it says in verse 37, he brought them forth. Notice there's something God did. He brought them forth with silver and gold. Now, we know what that was. The Bible goes into some detail about God telling Moses and Moses instructing the children of Israel to go borrow. The King James translation uses the word borrow. It's uh, not really the best word that could be used, I don't think, because really what they did, is they went and demanded payment for being held in slavery for 430 years. And it says the Egyptians, and remember by this time, these nine plagues have taken place. The only one that hasn't yet occurred is the death of the firstborn, which obviously is the most severe and, and um, most tragic. But having gone through these nine different plagues, the people are ready to let them go. They would have let them go a long time before that, I'm sure, had they had the choice. And so the Bible says that uh, Israel, the children of Israel, spoiled the Egyptians. They took everything they had. Now, they didn't steal it. They didn't rob anybody, but the people were so in interested and intent on getting rid of these people that because of the interaction with Pharaoh, Pharaoh was really the one bringing the trouble on them, but they were so interested in getting rid of these people that they gave them everything that they had. Here, take this. Here, take this. So it says he brought them forth with silver and gold, but then notice it says something else. It says, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Now, the children of Israel are estimated to be a crowd of anywhere between 2 and 7 million people. Pick whichever number you want. doesn't matter to me. How do, even the lowest number. How do you get 2 million people in one place and there not be any sick people? Now, we get a hint of something that happened 
Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 15. We get a hint of what took place. This is after the children of Israel have crossed over the Red Sea. They're in, they're on the other side of the Red Sea now, and they're beginning their journey. And it says the first place that they came to, verse 23, Exodus chapter 15, verse 23, was a place where the the water was uh, uh, distasteful, maybe even poisonous. Verse 23 of Exodus 15, it says, And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord. Now remember, this is a crowd of millions of people. We're not talking about somebody just putting up a a little um, water faucet somewhere and letting them eat or letting them have something to drink. The amount of water that was necessary every day to sustain not only the millions of people that were there, but also the flocks and herds and everything they brought with them was staggering. I mean, this is not just where a little pond would do. Nearly every day they needed an ocean or a sea of their own just to provide for their daily needs. So Moses cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance and there he proved them. Now, statute and ordinance is, is a, uh, um, it's really kind of a play on words. It's anytime you see where God talks about statutes and ordinances where he proved the people, it means he established an unchanging law. And here's the unchanging law. He said, verse 26, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, which I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which have come upon the Egyptians. Look at the last phrase, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. First time God identifies himself to the people, he calls himself, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now this word healeth is a continuous action verb. Here's the significance of that regarding the Hebrew language. Whenever you get a continuous action verb in the Hebrew language, that means that it has to have a relation to past events, present events, and future promises. So when the translators saw this um, continuous action verb, I, and they translated, I am the Lord that healeth thee, and that's probably about the best you could get. Because healeth doesn't just mean some past action was taken. It doesn't mean just some condition that exists for today. It doesn't just mean some condition that will be available forever. It means all of those things. So what, the, the, uh, uh, what, wh- what we have to do is try to identify what past event is this talking about. And it brings us right back to Psalm 105, verse 37. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. What Israel knew that most people haven't figured out yet is that Israel realized that not only were they spared, were their lives spared by the blood of Jesus or by the blood of the uh, Passover lamb, on the doorpost. Not only was that a part of God's work to, to spoil the Egyptians and to come forth with silver and gold, but at the same time, the eating of that Passover lamb brought healing and health to them. And we know that because it attributes it to a work of God. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. Why was there not one feeble among them? Because of what God had done. Now, where did God do what he did? The only information we have is the Passover. We see further on, just to, to, to uh, complete the circle, if you will, 
We see later on, several hundred years later, Hezekiah reinstitutes the Passover. And the Bible says that God healed the people. Even though they didn't keep it to the strictest letter of the law, God looked at the heart of the Hezekiah and the people of Israel at the time to reinstitute something that he never intended to be stopped. And it tells us specifically that God healed the people. And the word healed there is a word for physical healing from sickness and disease. So when God identifies himself as the Lord that healeth thee, he's not only saying I'll be the God that heals whatever present tense situation you're in, I'll be the God who by promise will heal you in the future, but I'm also the God that healed you through the Passover. Now, turn with me to, which one do we want to use here? I've got several different uh, opportunities. Let's look at Luke chapter 22. We see then that the Passover was something that brought healing to the people, and not just on one occasion, not just the first time, but also several hundred years later through Hezekiah. Now, the events that took place in Hezekiah's day is an indication to me that it has to be the same thing that took place on the original Passover. Why would it have any bearing on anything? Why would it take place in Hezekiah's day if it hadn't already taken place on behalf of the Jews in Moses' day? In Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, it says, When the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire have I desire with desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So they're at the last supper, and it was a Passover meal. For I say unto you, verse 16, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. When did the kingdom of God come? When Jesus was resurrected. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. So Jesus is identifying with the Passover. That's the point I want you to see. Jesus is the one saying the Passover, the type and the example of the Old Testament Passover is what I'm fulfilling. When he says, this is my body, when he takes the bread and says, this is my body, he's saying, I am the Passover. Paul tells us the same thing. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, I believe it is. He identifies that Christ was our Passover sacrificed or slain for us. So there's no question about him fulfilling the type. But what I want you to see is Jesus is the first witness that tells us that he's fulfilling the Passover type in his day. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So he identifies his body as the bread that is broken for them. He's certainly talking about the sacrifice that he's about to make in just a matter of a few hours. This is the last night that Jesus is with his disciples. So he knows the, the, uh, uh, he knows the sequence of events that are coming. And he says, this bread is my body, the Passover meal that healed you in the beginning is my body, is a type of my body that will be broken for you for the redemption from spiritual death and sickness and disease. He says the same thing about his blood. He says this cup is the New Testament or New Covenant in my blood. He's saying just like the blood of the Passover kept you from death when the destroying angel came through the camp. In the same way, my blood 
releases you from the bondage of spiritual death. So Jesus is the one saying that he's fulfilling the Passover elements. Now I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. One more point I want you to see about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. After Paul describes what Jesus revealed to him about the Passover meal, what we know of as the Lord's uh, Supper, he identifies that Jesus said about his body, this is my body which is broken for you. Verse 25, he says, this cup is the New Testament or new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's start reading in verse 26 now. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Notice what he says the communion or the Passover meal represents. It represents the Lord's death. So Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost the same thing Jesus told his disciples. This Passover is a type of what I'm doing and fulfilling for you. Not only does it do the same thing that the Passover did for Israel in, time, uh, in times past, but he's saying it'll bring you redemption. It'll bring you even a greater freedom. Break off the power of the enemy over you and over your life because I am the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, verse 27, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Notice that the word there is unworthily, not unworthy. See, the blood of Jesus makes you worthy. But apparently, Paul is directed by the Holy Ghost to address some situations that are taking place in the church at Corinth. And just as a reminder, the church at Corinth was probably the most worldly church of any place that Paul ever established a work of God. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was um, perhaps the most sinful and licentious place that the gospel was ever planted. And as a result, the world... And the idol worship of the world of that day and so forth, all the evil and all the terrible things that were a part of society had entered in and crept into this church. And so Paul is, uh, is trying to correct a number of things, this, this certainly not the least of them. So he says, if anybody drinks the body, drinks that which represents the blood of Jesus, and in an unworthy manner, disrespects the blood, the body and the blood of the Lord or that which represents the body of the blood of uh, body and the blood of the Lord he'll be guilty so wh- when he's talking about unworthily he's talking about the attitude you have toward the Lord's supper toward the elements specifically Jesus body and Jesus blood wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily or in an unworthy manner in other words thinking and acting in a wrong way toward what God sent Jesus to Uh, sacrifice for us he shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the lord but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup in other words examine yourself and make sure you've got the right attitude toward things for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily again it's not the not the word unworthy the blood of jesus makes us worthy but our attitudes don't necessarily have to be in the right place he's encouraging them to change that For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now notice verse 30. For this cause, 
For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. The word sleep there means died prematurely. So he's saying, and I want you to get this, I want you to recognize what Jesus said his sacrifice fulfilled in the Old Testament type of the Passover. If we have a wrong attitude toward Jesus and toward his sacrifice, specifically if we do not recognize that the body and the blood of the Lord were, uh, were shed for us and don't recognize what the meaning of those things are, then it can bring sickness into the church. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Our attitude toward the sacrifice that Jesus made can cost us our lives. It can either bring great blessing, or it can bring a curse upon us. It can shorten our days. So I want you to see the relationship between the Passover and sickness and disease. Thank God he is the Lord that healeth us. He's the Lord that healed Israel when the first Passover took place. He's the Lord that healed Israel in Hezekiah's day when they reinstituted the Passover. And he's the Lord that healeth us. When we recognize the body and the blood of Jesus was shed, not only for sins, but also for sickness and disease. So here's the first witness we have. Jesus is the one saying that the Passover is referring to him. We see from that the attachment and connection there is with sickness and disease, or on the positive side, walking in health. Now I want you to see the second witness that Jesus brings us. Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4, it says, And they journeyed, talking about Israel, in the wilderness. They've already passed up on going into the promised land. So this is part of the 40 years they wandered around in the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever looked at a map that shows the, the, um, as much as they are able to identify the direction, the places where these millions of people went in the wilderness. The fact of the matter is it was a miracle that they stayed lost for 40 years. But they did. So they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to, to compass or encircle the land of Edom. And the, people, the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Edom would not let them go through. Edom refused to let them go through on their land. And so rather than going to war with them, God directed them to go around the boundaries. It was way out of the way. It was tough, uh, a tough place, tough terrain for them to, to, uh, to go through or to, to encompass. And so the soul of the people was much discouraged because, discouraged because of the way. It was tough sledding for them, in other words. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. In other words, they're saying, we're tired of this manna. Well, you've got a long time left to go with it, so you better buck up. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Here's one of those situations where according to, to uh, Hebrew experts, uh, experts in the Hebrew language that a permissive verb is used that the translators translated into the causative tense. In other words, we know from uh, the things that the Bible talks about, the things that the Bible describes about the wilderness that they wandered through. We know that it was a land of fiery serpents. 
it was a tough place. It was a tough, uh, tough place for them to go through, tough place for them to live. But the only time we have any record whatsoever of those fiery serpents, which were all throughout the desert and the wilderness, the only time we have any record that they created or caused any problem for Israel whatsoever is when Israel stepped out from under God's protective umbrella through disobedience. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because the people come to their senses and realize they're the cause for all these snakes, not God. So fiery serpents came in among the people and they bit the people and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, notice what they said. They didn't say God is being unfair to us. They said we have sinned. Now folks, they know. And they had a lot of time to to learn and, and be ingrained in this truth. They knew that disobedience caused them problems every place they went to. They knew that the protective hand of God was upon them. Certainly the provision of God was upon them day after day after day. Just like I was talking about with the water, the food, the daily food provisions that would be necessary for these millions and millions of people was astronomical. It was just beyond comprehension how that God made food out of nothing and provided for the children of Israel, provided for their well-being. But what do they do time after time after time? They start murmuring against Moses. Things get uncomfortable, and the only reason they were uncomfortable is because they refused to go into the promised land when God said they should. So they create their own problem and then compound their own problem by stepping out of disobedience and murmuring against God and Moses. So they said, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, folks, what remedy does God provide for his people? They repent, they admit that they acknowledge that they sinned, they acknowledge that they're the ones that did wrong, and now this tragedy has come upon the people. A lot of people have died, a lot more are dying because of these poisonous snake bites. So what is it that they need? They don't just need healing power. They don't just need a healing promise. They need something that take the place or act as a substitute on their behalf regarding sin and sickness see if God just started healing people that were bitten by the snakes but there's no atonement made for their sin then the snakes more snakes are just going to keep coming into the count so they need something that takes care of both sin and sickness and that's why Moses was instructed of the Lord to put a serpent of brass on a pole turn with me over to John chapter 3 We could talk about what it meant for them to to look upon the serpent of brass, but we don't want to take that time. Hopefully you know some of that story already. Interesting that he didn't tell Moses to put a lamb on the pole, but a serpent, that which represents sin as well as sickness. It's the same insignia or the same, uh, uh, do you call it logo, symbol that the American Medical Association uses today. The serpent on a pole. 
John chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse... Well, we're going to have to start in verse 1, I guess. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with them. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that miracles and the things that you marvel at are a part of the kingdom of God. And the entrance into that kingdom of God is to be born again. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Obviously, he's just thinking naturally rather than the spiritual application that Jesus is referring to. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? The idea of being born again spiritually, being made a new spirit, a new creature in Christ Jesus, as Paul identified it, is just way, way over their heads, his head at least. Jesus answered and said unto them, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that which we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Folks, it came as a real shock to me some years ago, when through a friend, a, a Jewish rabbi friend that I made, friendship that I made with a guy, when I came to understand through him that heaven really was not a part of Judaic doctrine. Judaism has very little to, uh, to do with or to say about heaven. Judaism is all about the spirit of God and the kingdom of God here on the earth. Jews aren't looking for heaven. That's why they quizzed Jesus every time that they had the opportunity. Are you going to set up your kingdom here now on the earth? They weren't looking for heaven. They weren't looking for God to go to, for Jesus to return to heaven. They were looking for things to change here. So he said, if I've told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man ascendeth up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Notice verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 16 is the one everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice again verse 14. We know the context of what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the crucifixion, the substitution for our sins that Jesus would make to bring life to us, eternal life, to break the power of spiritual death and the bondage of spiritual death, which the Bible identifies as sickness and poverty. So Jesus is identifying with Moses lifting the serpent of brass in the Old Testament. He's saying, just like Moses lifted up that serpent of brass, so must the Son of Man be lifted up too. 
the thing about it being lifted up and the fact that Jesus was crucified on a, on a, a, a well, the Bible calls it a tree. We know of it as a cross. He was suspended between heaven and earth. Paid the price for mankind on earth. in a satisfying way to his heavenly father and he redeemed us as our substitute and so he says that Moses lifting up the serpent of brass in the wilderness was a type of him a type of that which he will fulfill through the crucifixion now remember what we identified in the old testament when Moses was instructed of the Lord to make the serpent of brass it had to do two things it couldn't do just one without the other it had to make an atonement for their sins which brought the fiery serpents into the camp anyway, and then it had to provide healing. So Jesus is identifying, specifically identifying with a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice that completed two works, the payment for sin and the payment for sickness and disease. That's our second witness. Look with me to Matthew chapter 26, and we'll look for the third one. I'm sorry, what did I say? Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Let's start reading in verse 1. It says, And he entered into a ship and passed over and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, Be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. 
Now, just for uh, by way of uh, full disclosure here, Luke's gospel tells us that they couldn't get into the house with this guy, so they had to tear off the roof. For which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk?
Now, folks, Jesus is asking a very real question. He's saying, which is easier to say? Or let's say it this way, which is easier to do? Is it easier to forgive a person's sins or heal their sickness? What would most of the church world answer if we asked that question today? Well, there's a lot of churches that will proclaim that our sins are forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus that wouldn't even attempt to bring healing into the, to the top, uh, bring healing into the conversation. power to heal sickness and disease is not now in Jesus day it was just the opposite at least for the scribes and the Pharisees because the scribes and the Pharisees would assume that healing can come about as a result of the anointing of God on a prophet (laughs) many prophets in Israel had healed as a part of their ministry brought healing to the sick It's not that it was an everyday occurrence, but it was certainly prevalent in Jewish history. And so if Jesus had said to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up your bed and walk, without saying anything or addressing the issue of sin,
The Pharisees wouldn't have been upset about that. They would have accepted that. They might not have liked it. But they would have accepted that as just something this Jesus guy is doing. But when Jesus answers and speaks to the man and says, your sins are forgiven, that turned the tables on all the Jews. Because they know who can forgive sins but God only. God's the only one that can forgive sins. And this added to their frustration with Jesus because Jesus is claiming to forgive sin when he's here on the earth. Now, the only way that would be possible if Jesus and the Father were one, which, by the way, he said to them numerous times, my Father and I are one. And every time he said that, they took up stones, tried to kill him. They did not want to accept in any way whatsoever that Jesus had power on the earth to forgive sins. But look at what Jesus does and look at how he does it. He says, again, he asked the question. No, he knows what. they're thinking so he asked the question wherefore think ye evil in your hearts for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and walk well he's going to answer the question he said but that you may know that the son of man talking about himself has power on earth to forgive sins then said he to the sick of the palsy arise take up your bed and go into your house now, folks, I want you to understand what Jesus is doing. He's proving that he has the power to forgive sins by healing of the physical body. How does that prove the end? How does healing works 
prove the power to forgive sins. There's only way that that's possible. And that is if it's the same power that heals that forgives sin. If it's not the same power, then what's he proving? His proof does not measure up. But he says, to prove to you that I have power to forgive sins, I'll heal the crippled. Why is that proof? Well, remember Acts 10.38? Peter preaching about Jesus in Cornelius' house said how God and anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him Jesus is saying something that they should know many of them do know they may not want to admit that they know but Jesus is saying what even his disciples as unlearned as they were they even they understood that sin is always the cause of sickness and disease. You remember over in John chapter 9, why don't you turn there for just a moment. John chapter 9, Jesus comes upon a blind man. Beginning in verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Now let's stop reading right there for just a minute and catch up on the things that are important to see in this story. Even the disciples, but notice what they know. They know that sin is the cause of sickness. So what's their question? Their question is, who's sin? That's the only thing they're asking. They're not asking, is sin the cause of this situation or is this a unique case? They know sin is always the precursor for sickness and disease. Now, they're wrong in the way that they're applying it. They think it has to be an individual sin. Their only question is, we don't know if it's the individual that was born blind. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Well, then whose sin caused the man to be born blind? The Bible says, by one man. Wherefore, as by one man, in Romans 5, 12. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. Now, what's the death by sin that he's talking about? He's talking about spiritual death because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. Spiritual death came to hold man in bondage. How did spiritual death hold man in bondage? Well, we can see very clearly the things that Jesus did. Remember 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested to destroy the works of the devil. What works did Jesus destroy? Well, sickness and disease were a big part of what he did. Healing the sick was a big part of Jesus' ministry here on the earth. When I, what, who does the Bible say, whose sin does the Bible say brought the problem upon us? Adam and Eve's. Not this man that was born blind, not his parents. But it goes back to the original sin which opened the door to sickness and disease as well as poverty. So Jesus answers and said, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now I want you to notice in verse 3 again, notice the punctuation in the, uh, the third verse. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. But then when they attach the but, then it makes it sound like, makes it seem, and this is the way that it was taught me in Sunday school in the church I grew up in. That God made this man blind because he knew Jesus would come by at that specific time, at that specific place, so he could heal him. But that would mean that if God wanted this man to be blind for any purpose whatsoever, since God never changes, then Jesus would have operated contrary to the will of God by healing him. Are you with me? God never changes. If it was ever God's will for this man to be blind, it would always be his will for this man to be blind. And Jesus works the works of him that sent me. What works did Jesus work in this man? He restored his sight. Well, if he restored his sight when God wanted this man to be blind, then that makes Jesus a sinner and an unworthy sacrifice for mankind. Well, we know that can't be true. We know Jesus was the spotless lamb that was slain for the, from the creation of the world, of the beginning of the world. We know that he died for all of mankind. So he has to be working in concert with God's will. Well, what does he do that's in concert with God's will? He delivers the man from blindness. He heals him. So God never could not have ever wanted this man to be blind. When you understand some of the basics, God's always good and the devil's always bad. 
Sickness and disease is always of the devil and never of God. Healings of God and making people sick is of the devil. Just those simple truths right there will take you a long, long way in the Bible. So what is Jesus saying? Well, remember that in the original transcripts, the original text of the Bible in Greek for the New Testament, Hebrew and the Old Testament, there's no punctuation anywhere. So the translators punctuated this thing and as well as dividing it into chapter and verse in the way that they thought, they felt, or they believed most accurately represented the character and the nature of God in these scriptures that are being identified. So they put, neither is this man's sin nor his parents, comma, or I think maybe it's a colon there. But he's continuing the thought, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me. They joined together the sin that caused the blindness and attached that to Jesus saying, I must work the works of him that sent me. But what is Jesus really doing? He, well, the first thing he did is answer the question. Jesus never ducked anybody's questions. There would be no reason for him to. He had the answers. So he answers their question. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Period. That's the end of that thought. Now he identifies what he's going to do in this situation. And he simply says, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him, I must work the works of him that sent me. Well, what do we know that God sent him to do? Well, when he heals the man's eyes, that's what Jesus said God sent him to do. So I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. There's a time coming, the time of the crucifixion, where no man can work. He seems to be in a hurry to get the things done that he needs to do. So he ministers healing to this guy. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind men with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent, he went his way therefore and washed and came seeing. So what was the work of Jesus, the work that Jesus was sent of the Father to do? Heal the sick and bring recovering of sight to the blind.
But remember the point that we're using this to illustrate. Even the disciples knew that blindness, as well as all sickness and disease, were a result of sin. They were unsure, and, and in this case, they were wrong. They were in error about whose sin created the situation. But Paul tells us by the Holy Ghost that it was Adam's sin that opened the door to sickness and disease. Not this man, and certainly not his parents. So what does Jesus do? Jesus identifies that the power to forgive sins is the same power that heals the sick. Now, folks, think about this for a minute. And I know. that we compartmentalize certain things we look at the power of God to forgive sins as differently than the power of God to heal sickness and disease we see those as two separate things but how could that be possible is there ever a situation where the forgiveness of God would not include healing for the physical body Jesus died for both the messianic chapter the chapter in Isaiah, uh, the chapter that is Isaiah 53, is recognized by all church groups. Anybody that believes in the name of Jesus recognizes that Isaiah 53 is the messianic chapter. It tells specifically from an Old Testament vantage point what the Messiah will do. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The word griefs is the word sickness and the word sorrows is the word pains. Surely. The only time the word surely is used in chapter 53 of Isaiah. And it's used not concerning sin, but, but is used concerning sickness and the substitute that Jesus paid or made for us to walk in divine health. Surely he has... borne our sicknesses and carried our pains yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of God and afflicted
Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The, reason, the only reason that, uh, that any scholar can come up with for why sins is referred to in two different ways is that Jesus had to pay the price for personal sin, but also Adam's original sin. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is the word shalom. It means prosperity. It means well-being in every area. The chastisement of the punishment for poverty, specifically for poverty, was upon Jesus at the same time. And with his stripes, we were healed. Now, how can you group everything else up together like that? Because his blood was the price that he paid for each and every part. There wasn't sin blood and then sickness blood and then poverty blood that was shed. Jesus shed his blood. The precious blood of the Son of God was shed to accomplish everything that that chapter says that he paid for He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Folks, we've got three witnesses. And there's probably more that we could dig up if we searched around. But we've got three witnesses, just like the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Three witnesses that Jesus gave us 
regarding the payment that he made for sickness and disease and not just for sin. Thank God it included everything. But we've got three witnesses specifically of healing from the lips of Jesus himself. It is always God's will to heal. It is always God's will to heal his people. And it's just as easy to take hold of as eternal life was. We didn't struggle over that. We may have struggled up until we got to the point to make the decision. But once we made the decision to make Jesus the Lord of our lives, getting saved, being born again, was the easiest thing we ever did. Receiving healing by faith is not any harder than receiving eternal life or what we know of as the forgiveness. of sins by faith either it's all the same it's the same work because it was the same blood that paid the price let's pray father we thank you so much for your wonderful plan of redemption it's not atonement it's not an atonement that covers over sin it's a redemption that removes it as such we have been made the righteousness of God in him as such we out and take hold of your healing power just as we reached out and took hold of your redemptive power to remove sin 
just as we reach out to take hold of prosperity and abundance, even as Jesus paid the price for all of them. Thank you, Father, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, we declare we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We are healed from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. No sickness and no disease has power over us. Instead, we take authority over sickness and disease. Bodies, we call you well in Jesus' name. Sickness, we call you gone in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, we speak that which we believe. And we thank you, Father, that it shall be exactly as we have said because of the precious sacrifice of Jesus himself, the shedding of his precious blood. Thank you, Father, that there is no sickness, no disease, no situation, no adversity that's bigger than the name of Jesus. And we use that name to take hold of healing for our physical bodies. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.